Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you, for you are all one in, G- in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is, no long, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Amen. Thanks, Sandra, for reading. Well, um, good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Do keep that passage open. Um, I'd like us, as we pray, to think about one of the lines in the song that we sung earlier. Um, I will stand on every promise of his word. 
This passage is a passage full of amazing promises. So let's pray together that the promises we find here in in, uh, Galatians 3 and 4 would be uh, real to us all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we so often fail to trust you. We so often find it difficult to believe you. But we thank you that there is an amazing promise in this passage, a promise about what it means to be freed so that we can be called, become a child of you. I pray that you would help us to understand some of the things in this passage that are difficult and help us to get excited about what it means to be your children. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're visiting, if you're joining us, having been away, we're in um, the next one of of a series in Galatians. And the big theme that we've been looking at in the book of Galatians is that of freedom. And today we're thinking about the really particular um, theme of being freed so that we can become a child of God. It's an amazing theme, and I hope it's one that will greatly encourage us. But perhaps as Sandra was reading, beginning of chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, you're thinking... What on earth is all this stuff about? I mean, this is a bank holiday weekend. I'm meant to be relaxing. And there's all this stuff in here about covenants and promises and seeds and the law and grace. What a world does all this mean? What I'd like to do in the first half of this morning is spend a little bit of time helping us to understand some of these things. Because though they may seem very complicated, they're hugely important. And grasping what chapter 3 is all about will actually unlock many of the truths that you'll find all the way through the scriptures. Uh, And then particularly I want to focus in the second half of the sermon on three things that this passage teaches us about what it means to be a child of God. So in this passage in chapter 3, and do keep looking down to it, Paul is really talking about two different things which he's contrasting. On the one hand, promise, and on the other hand, law. So let me try and explain promise here is referring ultimately to a passage in Genesis chapter 12, if you know it, is where God made a promise to a man called Abraham. And that promise involved three things. He said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will give you a land and I will bless you. They're amazing promises. And these promises came in Genesis chapter 12 and then follow all the way through the scriptures, but are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And these promises was all about how you and I can be in a relationship with God, how we can know him personally. But there's also the law. You read about the law in Exodus chapter 20. It was repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you remember, it was given to God's people through the prophet Moses on the mountain. And God's law involves many things. It means many things, but primarily it's about obedience. It's about what it means to live in obedience to a loving God. And it's also about flourishing, how you and I as human beings created by God can flourish. And the law in many ways reveals to us the holiness of God. That's a a phrase that's describing the otherness of God, how different he is to us, how perfect he is. But because of our failure to keep God's law, it leads to broken relationships. So notice These two contrasting things. The promise is all about a relationship with God. The law, though it's good, ultimately leads to broken relationship because we can't be good enough for God. So the obvious question we're all going to ask is, so why are these two things held here side by side? Because they seem to be very contradictory. Well, Paul asked the same question. Look at verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? And what's his answer? Absolutely not. 
And he goes on, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Paul's making something really clear. He says, if being good was enough for you to have a relationship with God, then being good would be good enough. He's setting it out plainly. If being good was enough to make you have a relationship with God, then being good would be good enough. But look at verse 22. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So what he's saying is you can't keep God's law. I can't keep God's law. I can't be good enough. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. So what Paul is arguing is that the law of God, in many ways, protects us because what it does is it pushes us to look to Jesus Christ, the one who did keep God's law perfectly, the one who can do everything that you and I can't do. The law protects us by throwing us on him. And it goes on, verse 24, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ has freed us from the inbuilt need and desire we have in our hearts to try and be good enough for God, because we can't be good enough. And Jesus comes, and he was good enough, which means that you and I don't need to strive all the time to be good enough. Do you notice the little word in there, justified? It's really a, a, a legal word that's saying that God declares us innocent before him, that we can be in a right relationship with him. But as you hear those things and you contrast the promise, you contrast the law, maybe you're asking a question that a lot of people will ask. One question that I guess comes as a bit of a surprise and would be a normal question to ask is this, um, but I thought I was good. I thought I was good. When I spoke at the women's uh, curry night um, a few months ago, I finished speaking. And I remember sitting down and I was talking to one of the ladies who was there and very sincerely she just said to me, so are you telling me that I'm not good? And it's a very sincere question. But let me describe it with this little picture. When we think about good, we often look left and we look right. And I think, well, here I am. I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm not as bad as that person over there. Actually, compared to them, I stack up pretty good. I'm good. But notice what I'm doing. I'm looking left. I'm looking right. I'm looking at other people. But what does the scriptures help us to do? They help us to lift our head up, not just to compare ourselves to other people, but to compare ourselves to God who is perfect. This lady very sincerely said to me, am I not good? Well, perhaps compared to the person left and right, I may be good. But compared to a perfect, holy God, of course I'm not good. One of the problems we have with this whole, am I good enough, is that we fail to judge goodness on the standards of God. We judge them on our own standards. Another surprise, though, you might be tempted to think, well, I thought that being good was good enough. Kind of, I want to live a life, and I know I do bad things, I could admit that, but I do good things too, and surely if there's more good than bad, it kind of outweighs and I'll be okay. My good will cancel out the bad and God will love me. That's Islam. That's a completely different religion, trying to do more good than bad, and if I do more good than bad, then maybe God would accept me. 
It's a bit of a lottery, isn't it? How do I ever know if I've been good enough? That's not the Christian faith at all. And the the third thing you might be surprised to think about is some people would say, well, you know, I've never actually stopped to think about what it means to know God personally. I, I might know a lot about God. I might know the Ten Commandments. I might know some parts of the Bible. But knowing him personally... Uh, feeling him, experiencing life with him, that's something I've never had. I don't really understand. Different questions you might ask. But do you see in chapter 3, verses 15 through to the end, there's lots of difficult words, there's lots of complicated themes, but actually it's very simple. Paul's talking about a promise, which is enabling relationship with God, and he's talking about the law, which is good, but can't in itself rescue us, because we can never be good enough. And so Paul holds them up side by side. And he's then saying, well, where does this take us? Well, notice as we move to the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, what I'd love us to do is to look at what it means to know God personally. Have a look at verse 26. So, in Christ Jesus, that little phrase, in Christ Jesus, means simply to put our trust in him. So someone who's put their trust in Jesus, who's following Jesus, is in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So we're going to think about what it means to know God personally. And this passage shows us that knowing God personally is really all about becoming a child of God. And the first thing the passage teaches us is to become a child of God is to know that you are loved. Let me try to illustrate this. Imagine there's a husband and a wife and the husband looks lovingly into the wife's eyes and says, I love you. You're beautiful. You have a gorgeous smile. I love the clothes that you wear. I love your smell. I love all the things that you do for me. I love the memories that we've made together. I love how much you show concern for me. I love the way you put your arm around me and give me a cuddle when I'm down. It's a beautiful picture of love, isn't it? Okay, imagine here's another husband, another wife, and they've had a bit of an argument. And the husband says to the wife, you irritate me. You don't understand me. You don't listen to me. You don't recognize all the things that I do for you. When was the last time you thanked me? You're always so busy. You never have time to sit down next to me. I'm so frustrated with you, but I love you. Now, which of those is the clearest demonstration of love? We might naturally go to the first one. That's the kind of sentimental picture of love that we have in society. It is love. Of course it's love. But the first illustration is no more love than the second. Because love isn't a feeling. Love is a commitment. And when it comes to God and the way he loves us, his love for us is far more the second than the first. He doesn't love you or love me because you or me is lovable. He loves us because of who he is. He loves us in spite of the fact that we're not always lovable. When we ignore him, when we do things our way, when we do things in our own strength, when we love something else more than we love him, he says, I still love you. Not because you're lovable but because I love you, and that never changes. I think so often we don't stop to remember what it means that God loves us. Some people don't think they're lovable. 
There's nothing in me that's lovable. No one loves me. Some people go through life and they experience that. But here's an amazing truth. Even when you feel that, God loves you. And he loves you perfectly and he never stops loving you. And he never loves you less when you muck up. And he never loves you less if you don't love him back. That's an astonishing truth. And that's what Paul is getting out here. Knowing God personally, being a child of God first is about knowing that you're loved. Notice the second thing, and it comes in chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says that you were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So what this passage is doing is it's contrasting slavery and sonship. And we're going to look about that in a bit more detail next week. But what Paul is saying is if you don't know God personally, then you're living in slavery. Because the object of your love is misplaced. Now maybe you would respond to Paul and go, yeah, but I love loving what I love. And God would say, yeah, because what you love may well be lovable, but it's not me. And if it's your first love, it's a misplaced love. And ultimately, you'll be enslaved to that which you love, which is not me. But the amazing truth here is that if if you and I have been adopted into God's family, if you become a child of God, he's rescued you from yourself. He's rescued you from this desire to have a misplaced love, to love something else, which is probably very lovable, but is not God. He says, I want to rescue from that so that you recognize that I am to be the first object of your love. And when you love me before you love anything else, all these other things which you love and the perfectly legitimate loves will make a lot more sense. Because I, the great lover, have given you these good things to enjoy. So to be a child of God is to be loved, but it's also to be rescued. So many people in our world think that they are free, but actually they're enslaved enslaved to this world enslaved to loving things in this world that God created before they love God who created them and it's true in my own life so often and I'm sure it's true in yours but here's the last one and this came up as Neil was introducing this theme to the children not only does becoming a child of God mean that you and I are loved not only does it mean that we're rescued but it also means that we belong I'm going to show you two contrasting pictures. Here's a picture uh, a few days ago, a week or two ago, when Steph and I went round to see Daisy Poot, James and Catherine's little daughter. And we went round to have a little cuddle, get in there early. Daisy is gorgeous. And she's not my child, but holding her was a really special thing to do. Imagine what it must feel for James and for Catherine to hold their child. Daisy belongs to them. Daisy is loved by them. And they will love her all the days of her life. They will look after her. They will protect her. They'll never stop loving her. They love her more than any other human being can love her. Why? Because she is their daughter. Well, here's another girl. This was in Africa in 2008. I don't know the name of this little girl, but because of the story I'm going to tell you, let's call her Grace. This little girl was abandoned in a ditch by her parents in rural Africa because her parents couldn't look after her. They had no money to feed her. They didn't have money for the health care that she needed, so they left her in a ditch to die or to be eaten by animals. And their mother, a woman who'd never married, found her in a ditch and brought her into her home. 
And that woman has done that now 80 times and has an orphanage of 80 children who've been found in ditches in the neighborhood she lives. And the project is called Miles to Smiles. And I remember holding this little girl who didn't belong. She didn't have parents. She was in a ditch. And as I held her, it was just as special as holding Daisy Poot, who did belong. And that's a little picture of what Paul is trying to get to in the heart of this passage. That if we don't know God, it's as if we're in a ditch, we're abandoned, we don't have a sense of belonging, we don't have a loving father. But just like this lady took Grace out of the ditch and she brought her into her family, along with 79 other children who now belong, those children now have parents in the same way that Daisy has loving parents. These children belong. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Once we've been rescued, once we know that we're loved, then we come into God's family and we belong too. We're no longer abandoned in the ditch. We're loved, we're held. We're in a family that we can never, ever be taken from. And you see it again in chapter 4, verse 6. God said the, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That's an astonishing truth. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ had a heavenly father. And you and I, if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, have that same heavenly father. That is an awesome privilege. Here where we read uh, Abba, Father, it's not really the sense of daddy. Often I've heard it preached on, and I've preached myself, this idea of Abba being daddy. A very sort of familiar thing which perhaps could have the kind of wrong connotations of an indulgent father who just gives their child everything they want. It's more a phrase that really means dear father. There's a sense of closeness, of intimacy, but there's also a respect and obedience. How does a very small child uh, demonstrate their dependency on their parents? It's through obedience, isn't it? Doing what a loving parent says. And as Jesus here calls his father, Abba, he's saying, you are my dear father. I'm fully dependent on you. And I'm going to express this dependence through obedience. You get it again in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. These are amazing truths, aren't they? That you're loved, that you can be rescued, that you belong But the last question I'd like to look at is one that Paul looks at in chapter 3. Who can be a child of God? Who can be a child of God? And do you notice what he says here in chapter 3, verse 26? Something quite surprising. He says, you are all children of God. But actually, a more accurate translation there would be, you are all sons of God. But the translation, the new translation in NIV has changed it to child or children. But it should read son. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's a bit sexist. Why son? Why not son and daughter? Why not child? Well, that's what the new translation has done. Paul very deliberately, speaking to the church in Galatia, where there were men and women, says to all of them, you are a son. Why has he done that? It's not because he's sexist. In that culture, the son was the heir. The firstborn son was the heir of everything that his parents owned. He inherited everything. So here where Paul says of the men and the women in church, very deliberately, you are a son. He's taking what everyone understood in that culture about heir and what it meant to belong. And he's applying it to everyone, not just to men, but to men and to women. 
So that means if you're here and you're a woman, you are a son. In the sense that Paul is speaking of. You belong, you are an heir. You get that in chapter 4 verse 7. God has made you an heir. And then you get this lovely verse in chapter 3 verse 28, which is quite familiar to us. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul here is not negating all difference. There's a lot of difference between a Jew and a Gentile. There's a lot of difference between a man and a woman. There's a lot of difference between a freed person and a slave. But there's no difference at all when it comes to being a child of God. What Paul is arguing is anybody can be a child of God. Anybody can be adopted into God's family. It doesn't matter what background you come from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how well educated you are, how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you've mucked up or how wonderful a life you've lived. It's a level playing field with God. He just says, you can be adopted into my family if you trust what Jesus Christ has done in your place because of the promise and of the law. The promise made to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus, anyone who trusts in him inherits that same promise. The law that's good, but you and I can't keep, but which Jesus Christ did keep. And so as we trust in him, we're freed from having to be good enough so that we can live now in a life to please God. So knowing God personally, it's about becoming a child of God. So I want to ask you a question as we finish. Do you this morning know that you're loved? Have you been rescued? Have you allowed Jesus to rescue you? And do you know deep in your heart that you belong? Who can be a child of God? Anyone. Anyone who turns to Jesus Christ and puts their trust in him. And if those truths can't get you excited on a bank holiday, then I give up.